This is Ramdas here and now. I'm Raghu Marcus, your host for a new episode. And uh, before I get into this episode, uh, giving you a little bit of tip about it is about. I want to talk about an exciting book that is coming out literally in two months from around when you hear this podcast, which is mid-November 2020. And it is Ramdas's memoir written by Ramdas with Rameshwar Das, who's been working with Ramdas on the last couple of books. And it is called Being Ramdas. And I I would love for you all to help us out because uh, we're in the pre-order stage right now. And as many of you know, because we've done this before, it really helps if we get a lot of pre-orders. That means the uh, booksellers will stock up way more and there'll be a wonderful presence for this book which is coming out just around a year after Ramdas's passing, which was on December 22nd, 2019. Now, there's a really great site that was created for this book, which has excerpts and pictures from the book and some not even in the book, just really special. Go to beingramdas.com. And uh, you'll be able to you post a message about what Ramdas means to you, so it's a little bit interactive, and you'll be able to scroll through several different excerpts from the book, and as I said, these wonderful, wonderful pictures and audio bits and video bits. Uh, it's a, it's a great site that really will. Um, get you into the spirit of this marvelous book. So beingramdas.com, just go there and please do pre-order. As I said, it will really help get uh, the presence of this book and this incredible being out to the world. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, also, just if you want to, it's a, this is a little further down. Well, it's not further down the line. On December, because I mentioned Ramdas left us on December 22nd last year, 2019. We are going to do a tribute on that day. It'll be around a four hour deal. It's a co presentation between Love Server Member Foundation and the Neem Karoli Baba Hanuman Temple in Taos, which Ramdas visited literally a few months before he died. It was an extraordinary trip. So we've got a great movie called Evolution of a Yogi that was done in 1969, and we're just in the middle of finishing or putting together a, a movie of Ramdas from his time in Maui over the last 15, 16 years. And that is, uh, well, right now it's being called Love and Humor, Ramdas and Maui. Those were, the, that particular phrase, love and humor, of course, is 
Ramdas's prescription for being able to work through the day-to-day issues that we all face, and boy, do we have some bigger ones now. Um, but we won't go there. And just uh, make sure you sign up at uh, ramdas.org and get on the mailing list, and we'll be able to remind you about this and the book and everything else that we're doing. Okay, so this is uh, Ramdas late 70s, 78 or 9, something like that. This is really crazy because I had not heard this talk before, and uh, it so, I mean, had I heard it before, I, I, just the fact that it it mirrors this movie, Becoming Nobody, that we did and put out a year ago is extraordinary <laughs> because uh, we had no idea that Ramdas literally presented these exact words about becoming nobody. Uh, and he starts this thing off, okay, we're going to talk about a scary problem of the spiritual journey, okay? And the scary problem is that uh, you become a somebody and then you you spend your whole life becoming a nobody and we're going to this this uh, talk really elucidates exactly what that means but i love this phrase at some point in the uh, talk he talks about so the scary problem really is it's about babysitting our psychological death <laughs> i love that babysitting our psychological death which you know, course acid is a anybody who's done any kind of psychedelics understands that quite well so in the beginning of this uh, talk he quotes uh, various um, advanced beings shall we say in relation to the idea of selflessness and um, maybe this uh, this will give you a little idea. The moment this is from Hazrat Inayat Khan. The moment of the spirit of selflessness has begun to sparkle in the heart of a human. He or she shows in word or action a nobility which no earthly power or wealth can give. So. Service is very much part of this becoming nobody. Uh, Suzuki Roshi, I believe, said uh, no self uh, is a being free from the, the constrictive motivations, the constrictive motivations of consciousness. So, uh, and... Uh, there's a great story. I think some of you may remember, because this is a pretty famous story of Ram Dass's being in a hotel on acid uh, in middle America, in mid-America somewhere. And um, remember, that's the time when he's completely gone and naked and about ready. To, okay, this is like over the top. I'm getting out of here. And he puts his hand on the doorknob and thank God something... Uh, uh, called him to maybe that's not something to do right now so it's a great story i love this story and the interesting thing is uh that the 
precursor to that visit is about the acid that he actually got from this uh, a fugitive who was a major acid maker and uh, he had helped get out of jail and whatever. And so I, I didn't never heard that part of the story. So uh, that's kind of cool too. And uh, also what I love here is how he talks about in this trip, he, he in slow motion dove into the space between two thoughts, which Trumpa, Trumpa Rinpoche used to call the gap. And that gap is where very advanced beings live in that gap. Okay. Uh, and then there's, of course, beings like Siddhas, like Neem Karoli Baba, who are beyond the gap. That's a whole other story. But uh, Ramdas relates that a little bit because he says, and this is all of our experience uh, being with Maharaji back in the day. And uh, Ramdas puts it this way he could not find a person inside that being. There was not anyone acting responsible and speaking from a point of view of doing anything, causing anything. It was just natural dharmic uh, flow. Um, So the bottom line is when we reduce ourselves to zero, we become simply a dharmic instrument. That's, uh, it's, it may sound a little poetic, but the reality of it is extraordinary. And I think all of us can, can identify with this, especially through the moments that we start thinking about somebody else. Someone's sick, we're going to go to that person. Someone needs food. Someone is hurt. Someone uh, just needs a hand to get across a street. In the moment that that happens we reduce ourselves to zero. I tell this story all the time of meeting Ram Dass the first time. He reduced himself to zero. He was no longer the Richard Alpert or the Ram Dass. There was just a field from which he embraced me. And the me that he embraced was the soul part of me. So I immediately could identify with that. So really, really great uh, talk. And... Uh, I, uh, again, I get blown away by the fact that uh, I, I hear something I didn't hear before or I hear it in a different way that I hadn't heard it before. But this, he absolutely, and it's not even a, gee, is this, is he is talking about it, becoming selfless and so on. No, he actually talks and, and mentions becoming nobody, which was a film that we had no idea when we put that together and named it. We hadn't heard this talk, and there's there's a couple of them like this, uh, but this one I hadn't heard. Um, so we, the, the, the object, of course, free of clinging and no preferences. Very, very difficult. Um, but uh, and the other little poetic thing I love... Just you get to the point where your singing and dancing is no other than the voice of the Dharma. Wonderful talk from Ram Das. Um, 
the scary part of problem of the spiritual journey is uh, becoming selfless. And, and selfless is like a little bit like when we talk about emptiness, it's not the nihilistic emptiness. There is nothing, as Bob Thurman calls it, it is the, the emptiness is the womb of bliss. So uh, we have to kind of recalibrate how we uh, think of some of these terms. It's very helpful. All right, again, go to beingramdas.com and check out this book. It's phenomenal. Please do pre-order it. Also, beherenownetwork.com slash, gee, there's so many. Mind Rolling is the podcast that I do. Check it out. There's, uh, I talk to some absolutely incredible people. And, uh, of course, Jack Kornfield and Sharon Salzberg and um, Joseph Goldstein, one of my favorites. Uh, please do go check out the network. Meanwhile, we will see you again next time on Ramdas Here and Now. Ram Ram. I was... Um staying in a beautiful cabin that Arif and Elizabeth have created that is just filled with um, essence feelings. And I was sitting in their meditation room. I was saying to Maharaji, Maharaji, what is it you uh, have in mind? I mean, it's none of my business, I know, but what are you planning to do this weekend? And um, I reached up onto a shelf in which there were a number of um, pamphlets of the teachings of uh, Hazrat Anayat Khan, who is the father of Pir of Anayat Khan, and that's the lineage and transmission that the abode is uh, receiving through its being here. And I picked out one of them randomly, and I opened it, and um, the teaching was um, a teaching that I often share, but it all, it's always so fierce that I'm always reticent. And I said, Maharaj, you really want to do it this way? And... Uh, See, it's like throwing the I Ching or something like that, or heads and tails. You can throw it and say, well, whatever it comes up, and then it comes up a way you don't like, and you say, well, <laughs> that's where the way those things are, and, you know, you can... But um, I, I figure now we all are here enough. So let's spend this next few minutes wrestling with really one of the scary problems of the spiritual journey. Let me, um, I'll start with this uh, few paragraphs by Hazrat Anayat Khan, who's a great Sufi saint. It is selflessness, selflessness, which often produces humbleness in one's spirit, taking away the intoxication which clouds the soul. Independence and indifference, independence and indifference, which are the two wings which enable the soul to fly, spring from the spirit of selflessness. 
The moment the spirit of selflessness has begun to sparkle in the heart of a human, he or she shows in his word and action a nobility which no earthly power or wealth can give. To become something is a limitation, whatever it may be. Even if a person were to be called the king of the world, he would still not be the emperor of the universe. The master of the earth is still the slave of heaven. The selfless one is one who is no one and yet is all. The Sufi, therefore, takes the path of being nothing instead of being something. It is this feeling of nothingness which turns the human heart into an empty cup into which the wine of immortality is poured. It is this state of bliss which every truth-seeking soul yearns to attain. It is easy to be learned and it is not very difficult to be wise. It is within one's reach to become good, but there is an attainment which is greater and higher than all these things, and this is to be nothing. It may seem frightening to many, the idea of becoming nothing. The hue for human nature is such that it is eager to hold on to something and the self holds on to its own personality, its own individuality. Once one has risen above this, one has climbed Mount Everest. One has arrived at the spot where earth ends and heaven begins. It's a selection. Add to that D.T. Suzuki Zen. To love God is to have no self to be of no mind, to become a dead man, to be free from the constrictive motivations of consciousness. Mahatma Gandhi. There comes a time when an individual becomes irresistible and his or her actions become all pervasive in their effect. This comes when that person reduces himself to zero. From the, when I was in Japan and studied in a Zen monastery in Kyoto, every day we would read, among other things, the statement, when you, this is a Hakuin song, when you understand that form is the form of the formless, your coming and going takes place nowhere else but where you are. When you understand that thought is the thought of the thoughtless, your singing and dancing is no other than the voice of the Dharma. This is a translation of the way of Chung Tzu by Thomas Merton. The true men of old 
knew no lust for life, no dread of death. Their entrance was without gladness, their exit yonder without resistance. Easy come, easy go. They did not forget where from, nor ask where to, nor drive grimly forward, fighting their way through life. They took life as it came, gladly. Took death as it came, without care, and went away yonder, yonder. They had no mind to fight Tao, fight against the Tao. They did not try by their own contriving to help the Tao along. These are the ones we call true. Minds free, thoughts gone, brows clear, faces serene. Were they cool? Only as cool as autumn. Were they hot? No hotter than spring. All that came out of them came quiet, like the four seasons. I recently had a dialogue. I was sitting in meditation at, a, um, at the um, Barry Insight Meditation Society Center in Barry, Massachusetts, which, if you don't know about it, it's a magnificent scene. And when I was sitting there, there were a number of... Um, it was being taught this time by five Burmese monks. Mahasi Sayadaw was the senior of them, was a very great Buddhist teacher from Burma. And Mahasi Sayadaw taught Anagorika Manindra, and Manindra was a, um, an Indian from Bangladesh originally. And he um, went to Burma and studied after having been a Hindu. He was a devotee of Anandamai Ma for a long time. Then he went and he became a Buddhist, and I met him in Bodh Gaya. He was one of my teachers in Bodh Gaya. And he was with this group in uh, Barry. His name was Anagorika Manindra. And he's a very beautiful, he's so transparent, you almost think he's not there at all. And yet he's a walking statement of the Vasudhimagga, or the Tripitaka, which is the Buddhist canon, the Pali Buddhist canon. And... Um, I was discussing with him various experiences that I've had, and he was sort of questioning me, because there are all these different category systems in Buddhism as to whether you've experienced nirvana and which stage and all of that kind of stuff. And I was telling him about this um, LSD trip that I had had several years ago. I've talked about it, here I go again. This LSD trip I had several years ago, in the uh, Mid-America Motel in Salina, Kansas. <laughs> and I was describing what that exact experience was like, and I was just talking about uh, what had happened was that I had been given some acid, which um, was very powerful acid, 
And when I took it, it was in pure form. So it was many, I mean, you could get 500 doses on, the, on the, your little fingernail. So I took, a, a, in my scientific way, I took the end of a matchstick, you know, and I touched it and I touched my tongue and I, and I started to go out and I kept going and going and going and going and I started to get paranoid. Because I wasn't sure about the acid. I wasn't sure what this fellow had given me. Um, and for you to understand that paranoia, I guess I've just got to backtrack a little. I've got to tell you the story. I was going to pass it by, but I guess I've got to tell it to you. Uh, there was a time in my life when I was a, um, um, involved in smuggling, Alistair. And I had distributors. I was doing it because I thought LSD should be part of the American fabric. <laughs> and one of my distributors was about to buy a large amount of LSD, and he was driving west in a truck with a lot of chemical equipment because he made another kind of chemical. And he got stoned, and he went through a truck stop place, and he got arrested and he was in jail. And this was just before I was to transact this deal. And the next thing I heard was a telephone call from his mother. And his mother said to me, so-and-so has been arrested and I need to raise some money for him. And he told me to go ahead with the deal and I'm taking over for him. Now, this is an unusual situation, and in the business that I was in at that moment, there is a, what you call healthy and functional paranoia. And it's wise to stay quite paranoid all the time, or distrusting everybody's motives. That's the way you survive in that business. And um, the thought that a mother I could imagine the government going to this woman, saying, look, we've got your son. We're going to send him away for life. But we don't really want him. We want who's supplying him. So if you will involve, if you will help us get that person, we will let your son go. And what mother wouldn't? I mean, I couldn't pit a mother against, you know, I mean, I couldn't trust a mother's instincts under these conditions. So I, the plan was to meet her at a certain time, but I didn't go. I didn't, because she was so cloak and dagger. She wasn't used to this business, and you get very cool in this business. And she was saying things like, she had watched so much television, she was saying, I'll meet you on the southwest corner uh, in front of this hospital at 12.05, and I'll be wearing a blue hat. You know, and I thought, oh boy, that's all I have to do is drive up to that corner. And uh, so I didn't go. And the result was that he didn't get the money and it was a hassle and he did get out of jail. And then a lot of things subsequently happened in his life and in my life. And it turned out that she wasn't gonna burn me. She really just didn't wanna do the deal, okay? This turned out later, but I didn't know that. Now, several years later, this fellow has again been arrested, has uh, escaped, is now wanted by the FBI I am giving a lecture in a city in the Midwest, which will be nameless, 
And I receive a girl up front afterwards with a note, and the note says, if you would like to visit, follow this girl, signed by this guy's name. So I said to the girl, I can't come tonight because I'm busy here with many people, but here's my number at the hotel if she, he wants to call me tomorrow, realizing it would be a risk since he's wanted by the FBI, but that's up to him. Well, he called, and I went out to his house, and he was living a whole different life by now. He had a new wife, new job, new body, new, I mean, he had his face all, everything was changed, he'd shaved everything off and straight haircut, and he had help your fire department on the back of his station wagon, his estate wagon with his big dog, and he was owning a, a chemical company as a front. And he was living in a big mansion, and he was like uh, somebody else, except that down in the basement were all the kettles and drum, you know, bubbling away. And I said, can't you learn your lesson? Isn't enough enough? I mean, how, what do you want, for God's sakes? You want to be strung up? You've, you've done enough for society already, you know? I mean, take some years off. And he couldn't stop, you know? It gets something you can't stop. You're going to do good so bad. So he had this little vial of stuff, and he said, look at this. And he turned out the lights, and it lit up in the dark. And he says, this is a sign of really good acids. So he gave me this acid, and I took it. And this is the acid, then, that I'm taking in the Mid-America Motel in Salina, Kansas, you see. And as it starts to go out and out and out, I suddenly think, Jesus, maybe he's getting back at me for what I did to his mother. Okay. Now you understand the paranoia, okay? I mean, you ha I had to tell you the whole thing so you just understand that level of paranoia. So I start to freak. I think, my God, what has he done? I've got to stop this. I'm running. I've got the whole room. Somebody has asked me to take a lot of Tibetan tankas to Boulder, Colorado. I had them in the trunk, so I've got them all over the room. I've got Maharaji's picture on the front of the television set. I've got the set on, but the volume off, so images are coming out of his body. I've got all kinds of holy quotes all around the ground, incense, and I'm naked, all right, in this room. And I start to flip out, and I think, I've got to stop this quick. And I rush to the door, and then this image of what's going to happen next if I walk out that door. I mean, you know, I mean, it's one thing to be in your own reality. It's another thing. Naked man in room 125, you know. <laughs> We have a code 120, you know, code 12, and then it's going to be a mess, and I'll, if I'm going to die, I'll die anyway, and it'll be just a horrible way to go. And so I, with my hand on the doorknob, I thought, no, I don't want to die that way. <laughs> so I turned back, and I tried to figure out if there was some other way I could die that would be more pleasant, or could avoid death. Is there some way I could avoid death? No matter how hard I thought about it, there was no way I could avoid death. I mean, it might take 40 years, but I was still going to die. You understand? I mean, I, and I'm taking you now into my LSD world, all right? There was no way that I could avoid death. And I realized that as long as I thought I was anybody, I was going to die. And what was going to die was who I thought I was. And if I... Yeah, each time I had a new thought of who I was, that one was going to die too, one way or another. And finally, since I could find no way out, there was a no-exit situation. There was no way not to die. I thought, well, why wait? And I turned to this big picture of Maharaji. I said, I said, Maharaji, 
Would you please let me die? I've had enough. And I lay down and I experienced my thoughts. They went until pretty soon I saw each thought arising, existing, and passing away. Tiny space, next thought arising. And as long as I was in a thought, I was living and I was somebody and I was going to die. And then the spaces between the thoughts became more pronounced. And finally, I was sitting in a thought facing the space and I dove into the space, which was the space between two thoughts. Now, the next thing that I experienced was the thought, well, now you can be anything you want to be. And the thought after that was, uh-oh, you came back. Do you hear that? I grabbed, do you hear the way that works? I mean, it was bittersweet. I could be anything I wanted to be, but I still was going to be something because even though I was free to choose now because I saw that I wasn't who I thought I was, still any thought I grabbed onto and I had grabbed because there I was back again. Now, how long that space lasted, I don't know. It might have lasted a millionth of a second. It might have lasted an hour. I have no way of knowing that. I, it was within that range, I assume, because of the way that night and day and all that. And the rest of the session was all very interesting and pleasant. Well, in telling Manindraji about this experience, he said to me, well, that was an experience of Nibbana, of Nirvana. Now, I had never associated that experience, even though I sort of thought it might be. I mean, I never thought it was. And the first thing I said to him was, yes, but that was drug-induced. Okay, that's my head trip about my values, about method. And he said, well, the drug it has nothing to do with it. It was you that were ready to do that thing. That happened to you. I said, but the truth, I said, then I went into the discussion, well, how do I know it's a valid thing? He says, well, you should be able to do this, this, and this. I said, I can't because the way I got to it was through drugs and I can't do it without drugs. And so we are a standoff about that issue. But that isn't the thing I'm trying to raise with you. I'm raising an issue that when he said to me, that experience you had was nirvana, I experienced almost a cold chill because I think I faced directly for the first time what I had been talking about for about a year now, of what it meant to become nobody. See, I've been saying ever since I met Maharaji, the thing about Maharaji that was interesting was that no matter where I looked, I couldn't find him. I mean, all these stories and events, and he did things that were just all this stuff, but I couldn't find a person there. I couldn't find somebody. There was nobody responsible inside. There was nobody minding the store, if you will. And I was looking at that from outside in. And I could see that there were long periods of time when I'd be lecturing, when the lecturing was just happening, and I was sort of just aware the lecturing was happening, but you see there was still somebody that was aware the lecturing was happening. But in that little space, there wasn't anybody there at all. 
And when I read the Buddhist texts, it describes that as you go into the nibbanic state, then after a while you get so that you can stay in it longer and longer and longer until pretty soon you could actually act while you were in it. And I understood, I began to understand what it is that is the end result of what it is you and I are doing here. And it was the chilling realization that the end result didn't have me in the scenario. That I just wasn't going to be there to say, well, this is the end result. See, I've been saying it so many ways. I've been saying, you can get up to the door, but you can't get through. And I say all these cute things like, nobody gets enlightened. But I never really grokked it. I never really experienced the feeling of what that no self-consciousness means. If you take Gandhi's thing again, there comes a time when an individual becomes irresistible and his action becomes all pervasive in its effect. This is Christ's statement, hedge ye but faith, you could move mountains. This comes when he reduces himself to zero. It isn't the place where you say, now I am zero. See, the wording, it's very hard because the statement, he reduces himself to zero. It sounds like the he that reduced himself to zero is still going to be around saying, now I've reduced myself to zero. But it isn't that way. The he that says, now I'm going to reduce myself to zero goes into itself. Uh, there used to be a wonderful UPA cartoon. I've never seen it in many years. It was a, a, a movie short in which a man is in a car and he drives out and he stops the car and he reaches into the back and he pulls out something and he takes an air pump and he pumps it up and it turns into a big lake. And then he takes something else out and he pumps it up and it turns into a boat and he pumps up something else and it's a fish and he pumps up something else and it's a beautiful girl. And then he gets into the boat and he goes out and he catches the fish with a beautiful girl on the lake. And then he comes back and he pumps up a tent and he goes to sleep and then he gets up in the morning and he takes everything down. He pumps, deflates the girl and everything gets deflated back on the fish and he puts it all back in his back of his station wagon. And he's going off and you see the station wagon driving down and you see a tack in the road and the tack hits the tire of the road and then the station wagon slowly turns back into nothing. See, we can go through the stages where we get to the point where we are so free of clinging we are not clinging, we don't care if we eat or don't eat, or if we eat good food or don't eat good food. We don't care if, we're, if it rains or it's sunny. We don't care if we get sick or healthy, we can handle pain. We can do all these things. But there is still somebody, there's still somebody in us. And that force of the universe, that statement, your singing and dancing is no other than the voice of the Dharma. When you meet a being who is cooked, there is only the Dharma. It is no different than a tree or a river. There is nobody home. And in that sense, we are babysitting our own psychological death. And whether our physical death is coincidental with that, 
will be of no relevance to us. Can you imagine that one? Because when you aren't, when there is no self-conscious entity, what difference does it make whether your body, whether the body or that body is there or not? And when I try to make sense out of the things that my guru has said, it only makes sense when I do not try to project a solid self-conscious entity into them. Now, the reason that I have to talk about this stuff, which in some way seems a million miles beyond us, is because of the perspective-giving nature of this discussion. That what often happens is we have made, you and I, we have made great gains in terms of awareness. I mean, most of us have been through a lot of stuff now. And those that haven't still have tuned in and done it very quickly. And so there, this group is, a within the cultural framework, a relatively conscious group of people. You are aware, more aware of the ecological implications of your acts. You're more aware of the social implications. You're, you're, you can be expected to be more of what would be called a conscious being. And it all starts to get lighter and easier and more playful and more dancing and more delightful. And I mean, I'm drifting through life. I must say it's really as heavy as it gets, it's still light. And I hang out with dying people all the time and it's still a blast. And I deal with people with excruciating pain and it's still okay. And there's a sway in which it's spacious and beautiful and there is that awareness that surrounds it all and there is an open heart and there is flow and it's beautiful and there is a tendency to say, well, that was pretty good. We really have it together. That's great. I just want to keep this chilling spectacle of where the game leads in my consciousness and in yours. Because I think that what has happened for many of us is that we have been somewhat reductionistic about the spiritual journey. And we've tended to say, it's nothing other than bloop. But the words that characterize the Sufi tradition of towards the one, the return to the one means just that, return to the one. And when there is one, there are not two. And your self-consciousness only exists so long as there are two. It does not exist in the one. God does not know itself. It only knows itself through duality. And duality has inherent within its suffering. And the end of suffering is the end of duality. And the end of duality is the end of you. And then the forms may go on or not, but you will never notice. And what you find and what I find at times is I am going hell-bent, whatever that expression is, hell-bent for leather or whatever that is, towards the goal of being one with God. And at the same moment, it's like one of those horses 
that's got its paws into the earth, pushing against the momentum of the thing it's doing. There's part of me pushing against the ultimate irrevocable end of this story. At the same point, another part of me is racing headlong towards it. I mean, there is a neurosis in the spiritual journey. And it is inherent in the, it, it, what it lies in is the issue of psychological death. And that's part of why my project with dying is so important for me. Because it allows me to deal again and again and again with this issue of death. When I was in Thailand, I went to a Buddhist monastery in which they cure heroin addicts. And they cure 300 heroin addicts every 10 days. And it costs $15. And no statistic is like that anywhere else. And when I went there, I'm not going to go into the whole story now. I'm just going to tell one little part of it. The person that runs it is a monk. A Theravadan Buddhist monk. And he is a monk. Well, the, the two-minute story is that he was a, a member of the um, drug division of the government of Thailand. He was a policeman. And he had an aunt who was a Buddhist saint. And she said to him, I don't know what a Buddhist saint is, but she was one. And she said to him, you're going to end up killing and hurting people. Why don't you help them instead of hurting them? And he said, I don't know how. She said, you get your scene straight and I'll tell you. So he gave up the police and he became a Buddhist monk. The Buddhist monks take on 228 precepts. A bhikkhu, a, an initiated bhikkhu. Uh, non-killing, non-stealing, non-lying, non-sexual misconduct, non-taking non intoxicating beverages. That's five. Then there's... You don't sleep on soft beds. You don't listen to music. You don't adorn yourself in any way. You, uh, then it gets into more esoteric ones. You don't leave the monastery during the rainy season. Uh, it goes on and on, and they get more and more complex. There's two, I mean, you can't spit in this thing. I mean, it's 228 of them. And those even weren't even tough enough for him. He added 10 more. You don't drive, you don't ride in any vehicles. So he was like uh, three hours by car south of Thailand and when he had Bangkok and when he had a fight with the government, he just walked to Bangkok. I mean, when I met this guy, it was like meeting an oak tree. There was just nowhere that this, this guy was just, oh. And he got to this point where he had done all this discipline and then his aunt said, okay, and she gave him an herbal method and also a set of vows and stuff like that. And he says to these people that come to the, the monastery, you can come once for 10 days, you may never come here again. And he just, his mind is so powerful and his reality, in which they are not drug addicts, addicts, is so strong that his mind and his reality is stronger than their addiction. And in the battle for their souls, his statement, it's not religious, he doesn't teach them religion or anything, it's merely that the power of his being 
There comes a time when an individual becomes irresistible and his action becomes all pervasive in its effect. This comes when he reduces himself to zero. And this guy, through 238 precepts, has become merely a dharmic instrument for the healing of heroin addiction and opium addiction. And it is so strong that even junkies can't resist it. So I said to him, is it possible that anybody else could do this or only you and your aunt? I mean, could we take it to America? And he says, no, others could do it. I said, could I do it? And he looked at me. <laughs> and he said, well, perhaps. But there wasn't much hope I could see. And then he tested me in various ways, which the tests were very perplexing. But uh, instead of going to the tests now, I'll, let me come back to this. When I came back to the United States, I have many, many friends who are extremely devoted social servants. They really love humanity and they want to help people. And I thought here, and there are many of them that are working in drug rehabilitation. And I thought here, I have met something that works. And I've tasted it and touched it and it feels real and I saw the changes in these people in 10 days and I really think, I don't know the statistics, but I think it may work. And in all the time I've been in the United States in the last three years, I have not found one human being who was ready. Do you hear that? That's what I mean about dying. Because when you get trained in that training, there ain't, he's not going to let you be done until you aren't. And all that's going to be left is somebody that cures drug addicts. There's not going to be anybody that says, well, I finally did it. I now can cure drug addicts. There's not going to be any flicker of consciousness. Because the power comes when the thoughts, when the mind has become one-pointed, when it just goes zip. And as long as there is the flicker of thought form that comes with self-consciousness of you do something that way and then there's a quick thought of I'm doing something that way, forget it. It's watered down. And that's why you and I have what we have and why Christ had what he had and Buddha had what he had. It's because we are full of thoughts that keep us oriented to who we are and how it is. This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. Please continue that support and donate at Ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you.